my experience running fraud at Coinbase, Revolut, etc., 90% of chargebacks we would get would be from fully verified identities. I would have like an SSN on file, verified. I would have a driver license on file, verified. But still payment fraud is happening. So that was kind of like the aha moment later for me when I was searching for an idea to start a company. The aha moment was that we need one solutions which combines the worlds of KYC identity fraud with the world of payments. Welcome to Research Radio, the official podcast of Contrary Research. Contrary Research is the best starting place to understand any private tech company. In each episode, we dive deep into the most important conversations and companies in technology. This show is your first step to understanding any startup. I'm your host, Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. For more info and to read our full research reports, visit research.contrary.com. Myself, guests, and Contrary may have financial interests in the companies discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice. As always, do your own research before making any financial decisions. Today, we're talking about one of the breaking points that is increasingly popping up as part of a massive tailwind. That tailwind is digital penetration. First, with e-commerce. By the end of 2022, e-commerce sales had hit $5.4 trillion worldwide. Second, with crypto. While crypto obviously has had a rough couple of years, Bitcoin is back up to its previous highs as the beginning of 2022. And there are still 425 million cryptocurrency users worldwide. Finally, you have digital payments. The volume of digital payments globally is set to hit $10 trillion by 2026. But with all of that online activity, fraud rears its ugly head. Between 2023 and 2027, fraud losses are expected to hit $340 billion. On top of that, fraud in crypto alone hit a high of $14 billion back in 2021. As consumer expectations continue to rise for their digital experiences, one of those expectations is very likely that they won't be ripped off online. That's where Sardine comes in. Sardine is a fraud detection and prevention platform that focuses on analyzing consumer behavior to understand high-risk users. I sat down with Supes Ranjan, the CEO of Sardine. The background of his team was built over the last decade, trying to understand fraud for platforms like Revolut and Coinbase. Here's my conversation with Supes. Supes, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to do this. Absolutely. A pleasure being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you know, Contrary Research, our big focus is on being the sort of best starting place to understand any private tech company. And so we like to start with the simplest question right at the top. What does Sardine do? Maybe give us the elevator pitch and then we can dive into the details. Absolutely. Yeah. So Sardine is one unified platform for solving for both fraud and compliance. We serve 250 plus customers globally in a variety of sectors, such as banks, banking as a service, fintechs, crypto companies, gift card exchanges, online marketplaces, right? And we solve for fraud using behavior, consumer's behavior, right? That's our differentiator. The second differentiator is we have combined both fraud and compliance, which would be like KYC identity verification, as well as transaction monitoring. So on the compliance side, and on the fraud side, we do things like detecting if someone is using a stolen identity or synthetic identity at the time of account opening, are they using a stolen card or stolen bank account to make a payment? Or, you know, did somebody make an unauthorized login attempt? And after that, they are draining your wallet or your account, right? And then finally, issuing fraud, which would be 
for all these new types of card issuers like the new banks. If I have a Chime card or you know a Brex issued card, then that gets stolen and somebody else is spending on it. Very cool. Well, it's also every founder, I'm sure, has this aha moment where they realize what they want to build and why. Um, one of the things that really blew me away, you have this quote when you talk about the company where you say, I knew that I needed to start Sardine when I saw firsthand a million dollars stolen by identity fraud. I can't imagine that that was a very exciting thing to see. Tell me about that. How did that fraud happen? What was the story that kind of led to the founding of Sardine? This is when I was at one of my prior employers, right? I was managing fraud at Coinbase. And this is circa 2016, right? Which is when, you know, the price of Bitcoin was like $250. And, you know, in those days as well, and it's still true today, like if you have a stolen identity or a stolen payment instrument, the best thing you can buy is, you know, something which is crypto, right? Because it's uh, instantly transferable. It's not reversible after you bought it. And then it's fungible. You can go sell it somewhere else, right? In the old days, if you had a stolen card, you'd go buy, drive to Best Buy and load up the highest priced smart TV. <laughs> Nowadays, there are many easier ways of uh, stealing money from a stolen payment instrument. So now going back to the story, this is then 2016. And if you remember in those days, concepts like identity verification, they were just very new. The fact that you know crypto exchanges such as Coinbase were even asking folks to upload the driver license was very new. But anyway, so what happened in this case was that we saw somebody had taken over someone's bank account. Another person stole an identity and essentially created what I would call a synthetic profile in the sense that one person's identity, different person's phone number, and a third person's bank details. And now the interesting thing here is that when we found that there was a, a loss to this extent and we reached out to the person who had uploaded that ID, they were like, hey, I didn't do it either, right? Like my identity was stolen. I filed a police report about it, right? So then we realized that there's fundamentally something broken over here, which is that the world of identity verification today, it does not talk to the world of chargebacks at all. My experience running fraud at Coinbase, Revolut, et cetera, 90% of chargebacks we would get would be from fully verified identities. I would have like an SSN on file, verified I would have a driver license on file, verified, but still payment fraud is happening. So that was kind of like the aha moment later for me when I was searching for an idea to start a company. The aha moment was that we need one solutions which combines the worlds of KYC identity fraud with the world of payments. Because KYC is, is a one-time relationship. The KYC companies, they don't know anything afterwards after you have done KYC. They have no idea of the subsequent customer journey. Payment companies, they don't have visibility today about what KYC you did. And Sardine is really unique in that we bring the two worlds together in one platform. And I want to get to the Sardine solution because I think the product, the way you describe it is very interesting. Before you do that, kind of taking a step back, so you see this sort of fraudulent experience firsthand and, and you kind of see that as indicative of the broader landscape of what's happening and the problems that exist. Help me understand the sort of status quo of the anti-fraud industry today, right? Like who are the big players? Who does the bulk of this work? Like what is that kind of status quo environment? And then we can step into how does Sardine innovate on top of that? So first and foremost, fraud is as old as money. So there have been and there are several fraud prevention providers out there. I would say majority of them, they started in the world of e-commerce fraud, right? Like the, the best by example that I just gave, right? So primarily looking at credit card as a main payment instrument and preventing card chargebacks done to buy something at an e-commerce store. In that world, 
even if you switch from physical retail to online in that world to prevent fraud you got to look at just primarily shipping address and shopping cart as signals am i shipping it to warehouse or like a po box and shopping cart analytics meaning like did i immediately add the highest value item that this merchant sells so when the world was shifting into more of this quasi cash type use cases where signing up for a fintech wallet and loading money into it or i'm loading money into a brokerage to buy stocks or loading money into a crypto exchange to buy crypto then we had this realization that the actual product that you're buying has no shipping address associated with it and that's where we first started we first started with the digital only so we have the top 3 crypto exchanges as customers we serve one of the largest gift card exchanges as a customer and we also now serve online retailers as customers because our thesis there was that if you can solve for fraud in a high risk industry you can solve for it in lower risk in other words if you live in a tough neighborhood you learn a trick or two and in terms of how that transit cuz just as you're talking and i'm listening to the types of customers you have these are not small organizations like these are pretty sizable organizations that are managing a very broad customer base and so just to double click into that we think about these fintech platforms, exchanges, whatever, it doesn't sound like they're very well suited to deal with fraud. Uh, you know, maybe there's not, you mentioned a little bit of like the level of granularity that they can get into understanding their customers and things like that. So what exactly is the difficulty there or the limitation for them that makes a solution like Sardine make so much sense for customers? Yeah, in other words, right? Like what is the unique value prop that we bring in the world of fraud prevention is our focus on just users' behavior. behavior biometrics like how do you type swipe scroll move the mouse hold the phone etc and we saw an opportunity there that while it has always been talked about behavior biometrics as a concept has also existed for at least a decade no one was really applying it in the world of fraud fighting they were trying to apply it in the world of account takeovers primarily but not for payment fraud not for identity fraud so that's our strength we've invested the last 3 4 years into building the most sophisticated sdk Uh, which does both device fingerprinting as well as device risk assessment is this a true device or is this somebody using an emulator uh, a script we have you know proxy and vpn detection which is world class we can oftentimes pierce through proxy and identify the true ip being used by a scammer and then on the other side we also focus very heavily on the behavior signals like one example would be if i am creating an account using my personal info everything will be autofilled by the browser uh however you know if i'm pretending to be you kyle i'll context switch a lot while i look up your info or i'll copy paste it right another example being uh you know like we have signals which tell you when someone is using a mobile phone are they typing with the phone being upside down which wouldn't make sense is there any shake when you're typing which also wouldn't make sense right so those are very advanced telemetry signals that we go that we get into So you've got the user biometrics and that that sort of profiling data to understand who someone is and how they act and things like that. So that level of data obviously you're getting from the existing platform like they know who their users are. What is the walk me through a little bit this idea of trying to bring a lot of these things together, right? So you have the KYC side of the house uh you talked about payments like you're trying to bring things into one place help me understand the like if it's if it starts with tracking a user's behavior how does that platform flow through in everything that you're doing yeah no absolutely so going back to what i was saying earlier right like identity prevention companies don't stop fraud because their relationship is one time only 
what we instant do is uh, we have continuous relationship with the consumer in the sense that when uh, one of our partners is integrating us, they make a call to our API at time of account opening. Again, they make a call to the same API when you are adding a payment method. And when the customer is logging in, they make a call to the same API. And every time they're just passing us some additional uh, information with respect to that checkpoint in the customer journey. And the API surface area is very simple, like name and address, DOB, SSN, at opening of the account, payment instrument info at the account, payment method linking, right? And then, but behind the scenes, we are doing a lot of data crunching in real time. And that's the strength. Like in real time, we're doing all this aggregation, cleansing of the data, post-processing. And then we produce like 4,000 plus features in our internal feature store, right? And you essentially now get a machine learned risk score back from us in real time at each of those checkpoints, right? I remember, you know, when I've spent time with companies that play in different parts of the stack of the kind of user onboarding flow and this sort of customer understanding KYC, AML type of stuff, it feels like there are very specific segments that people play at certain points in time. They're trying to verify certain things, whatever. And it seems like there are sort of workflow tools that are helping you manage your own fraud processes. Then there are kind of point in time solutions like you're talking about, where it's KYC folks who are checking something saying, hey, is this make sense? Is this person who they say they are cool? I don't ever want to think about them again. Um, and then there are kind of the data providers, right? The So even the old school LexisNexis to, you know, what have you, all the way down, there's all these different data providers you can check against and stuff like that. How do you guys think about yourself? Is it, are you trying to solve sort of that entire process? Are you integrating with some of those point solutions for certain checks and balances and trying to be the workflow platform yourself? Or how do you think about yourself in that landscape? Yeah, look, so one of my other realizations was that, you know, at Coinbase, I had like 35 different data providers I was buying data from, managing all those 35 contracts, right? And then 2020, when we were starting Sardine, we realized that, you know, as new entrepreneurs are starting fintech companies or, you know, as money movement increasingly moves online and banks, et cetera, have to redo their whole like stack from starting from redoing their core processing so that they can enable faster payment methods, right? In both those cases, you can't really, you know, do what you're doing as in go integrate like 35 data providers, right? Or always keep adding one and one more and one more and one more. So our pitch was very simple that it's one singular API which solves for both your fraud, KYC, AML responsibilities, right? Simple API. Behind the scenes, we go and we acquire data from the same 35 data partners, and we are constantly looking for best-in-class additional data providers, right? Depending on the context, we can then, you know, enable any of those modules for you. So therefore, in other words, right, we are uh, fraud prevention using machine learning at its core as the core differentiator. When it comes to KYC, we can act as an aggregator of sorts. However, we are much more opinionated than some of the other workflow orchestration engines that you see. As in, we're not going to say you'll have access to 200 plus customer, uh, 200 plus data providers in our platform. That's not our pitch because like, even after you have those 200 plus partners, you do still have to come back and do the work. We actually do a lot of that heavy lifting work. We choose best in class partners for SSN checks, sanctions checks, et cetera. And we always have two partners for everything, right? So yeah, so in short, like fraud is our core focus and KYC. So now you, you look at kind of the solution that you've built out, and then there's the types of customers you're addressing. You mentioned a bunch of different types of customers. 
And, and I know that obviously your background, you'd spent some time at Coinbase and starting in 2020 and into 21, obviously crypto as a category had a pretty good time, a uh, good run. And I, and I know that you had some success there with crypto. As you've seen crypto as a category sort of correct to some extent or have sort of an extended downturn, you know, how did that impact you guys? How did you think about that? Were you already pretty diversified away? And how are you thinking about the categories that you're prioritizing going forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So building a horizontal platform such as what we're doing at Sardine, right? It has multiple use cases, right? So our product hasn't had to change at all. Like earlier in this year, right, we started going off categories outside of fintech crypto. So we now have several online marketplaces as customers. We have several banks as customers now, right? And we have several, of course, you know, embedded finance customers as well, right? And to answer your question, right, like the platform is very modular. Right. So it has use cases for all these specific categories very easily. Right. So starting from there, the next question I have for you is, as you think about those types of customers that you're serving, and as you look at the best way to capture the value that you're creating for them, you mentioned this unique value proposition, uh, it kind of gets into the business model to some extent. And I'd love to better understand the way that you guys think about that. You know, is are there certain flat rates for things? Is it based on an API, the number of API calls? How have you thought about kind of aligning your business model to the value you're creating for your customers? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, our goal is always that the cost of fraud should not be higher than the fraud rate itself, right? So we have like a very interesting story I want to share. So this is one of our customers where it's in the gift card exchange space, one of the largest gift card marketplaces. The very first call, like the entire C-suite showed up, like the CEO, the CTO, the CPO. And uh, they were like, hey, we're spending, you know, over $2 million a year on, you know, just the cost of fraud itself, like all the data science, data scientists, the backend engineers, you know, all the Google Cloud costs, et cetera. And we can't keep maintaining it. This is not a core value prop at all to be best in class in fraud fighting, right? So we made a decision to not buy instead of continuing to maintain what we built, right? And really applauded that decision because a lot of people are get emotional, emotionally attached to what they've built. And anyway, so they, they signed with us, you know, at a fraction of what they were spending earlier. And they're a very happy customer, right? So we are very much aligned with that value that we are customer first. The pricing model itself is, you know, SaaS. There's a platform fee, which gets you access to our dashboard, which has, you know, a low-code rule builder with 700 plus rules that come out of the box around, you know, fraud as well as AML typologies. And it also has like a network graph tool, which you can use to investigate various entities which are linked together in a fraud or AML ring. And it has case management functionalities as well built in, including, you know, for banks, we offer user activity report filing or SAR filing as well, right? So that's the dashboard side. Then for our device intelligence behavior biometrics SDK, we made a conscious decision not to charge per API because that's what I used to pay in my prior life. And guess what? When my vendors were charging me per API call, I would be like, man, like after two or three times this person opens up the app and does transactions, I already know they're good. So I used to actually stop calling those data providers afterwards, right? So we said, okay, we're not going to charge per API. We're going to just charge per MAU, per, per monthly active user. So that's how we charge. So even if you open up your FinTech app like 100 times a, a month, you only pay once for that month, right? And then for transactional stuff like fraud or AML, it's per transaction. And for KYC, it's per user. 
So this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is something that's interesting because this type of business model is one that a lot of people, I think, are sort of trying to wrap their heads around, right? There is a, to some extent, a usage component of what they're doing or what your end customer is doing and charging you for. And so it's interesting as you guys think about charging per MA, on the MAU side, is that something, you know, are you able to more actively track that in a way that like other software companies might not be able to because you're actually having to keep track of that person and know that person and enrich a user profile. So you don't need the company to report their MAU. So you, you know exactly how many people are coming through and you're not going to charge them if you're, veri- if you're verifying the same person. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So in fact, we do all the heavy lifting on the pricing. When the customer integrates with us, they actually send us, you know, like a user ID as well as, you know, every time that user is logging in, doing anything we know that user ID. So we do the counts of MAUs for them. It's built into our dashboard. Yeah, that's great. So we've talked a little bit about the sort of verticals that you're serving, the types of customers that you're addressing. But when you think about like segmentation in terms of customer size, there's obviously a very big difference between a marketplace that's maybe doing a couple hundred million of revenue and a multi-billion dollar bulge bracket bank, for example. And so I'm curious, how do you think about those segments and how does that inform the go-to-market motion that you're using? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So our go-to-market motion is, a, is, is increasingly much more enterprise heavy, right? And that's actually very true for our product as well, because the product itself is built for you know large enterprise customers who have many fraud ops or compliance ops professionals reviewing cases, et cetera, right? But yeah, between the online marketplace serving hundreds of millions of revenue versus a bank with billions, right? We don't really differentiate very much because, you know, the product is really just built for both the use cases. The only realization we've had is that for the smaller companies, right, which like, you know, the early young startups, right, we have realized that, you know, it's, you can only do enterprise. You can't do both enterprise as well as uh, like really young startups together. So we are constantly trying to figure out, okay, for these young startups, what can we offer them, right? And we we still haven't found the perfect solution. But what we've realized is that we can't really handhold them so much because we can't really, you know, continue to scale up my, our post-sales team in order to handle all the small companies out there, right? But we are trying to figure out the motion for the smaller ones. The enterprise one, it's it's well-trodden path for us now. We have several Fortune 500s in our customer portfolio. So is that, and I don't know, do you guys have a sort of self-serve product that folks can use or it's all got to be, I'd imagine it's very difficult to do that, you know, just to say, swipe a credit card and, and handle it yourself. No, we, we don't want to do that at all. In fact, our API documentation is also not public. The reason is, you know, fraud is a very interesting space. People like fraudsters are trying to break in and realize how our anti-fraud company solving for it. So that's why we don't have self-serve. We also, that's why I don't have APIs that are public. I mean, at some point of time, we might look into building self-serve, but not a priority at this moment. Yeah. Is there anything that when you think about the types of fraud or the threats that are out there, what are the things that you are maybe most worried about or you think are the most pernicious types of fraud or the most difficult to combat? And is any element of that like supercharged by things like generative AI? I, I feel like there's more on the like phishing and cybersecurity side, but I'm curious if in fraud, there are certain trends that are sort of alarming as you're thinking about how do we keep combating this? Yeah, no, absolutely. We service both anti-fraud as well as scams, like the prevention of both, right? And I think that tools like generative AI are just making it easier to perpetrate both right? Scams 
even more, right? Because the way I differentiate between fraud and scams is fraud is basically your payment instrument got stolen and someone is spending as you. Scams is that, you know, you actually authorize the transaction yourself, right? But somebody conned you into making the transaction. They socially engineered you into making the transaction, right? So uh, with generative AI, we are seeing cases like folks are cloning your voice, your video. So therefore, online verification of identities becomes difficult. Voice-based authentication when you're logging in at banks, which still allow you to do that, becomes you know harder, right? So our thesis is that the future of online verification of identities is increasingly going to be a battle of bots, right? Extrinsic AI trained bots versus intrinsic AI. Extrinsic AI bots would be the bots which are trained on uh, open AI, clone your voice and video, but because that data is in the public domain. Intrinsic AI would be how you type, how you swipe, how you hold the phone. That data is not in the public domain. So therefore, fraudsters can do anything to clone your public domain info, but they can never clone what truly defines you intrinsically. And that is where Sardine fits in on the intrinsic AI side. Are there any use cases for your customers that you can't apply that type of user kind of biometric behavior data? Like, is it more difficult in certain types of transactions where you're just not seeing that type of stuff? Or is it you can apply that everywhere? Yeah, so we apply it for things like identity fraud, right? Like the speed at which you type your social security number. If I type mine, I'll type it fast from long-term memory. But if I'm pretending to be you, I'll type it slowly. So that's one way. Payment fraud, again, like, you know, if I'm buying something online, my credit card will be autofilled by my password manager or my browser. But if I stole your credit card, I'll copy paste it. And I'll context switch every time if I'm typing it, right? Account takeovers as well. We, what we've found a lot of success in is, let's say I fished you, Kyle, and you entered your username password in a site which looks like a bank, but I take the credentials and I'll replay it. When I'm replaying it, I have to do all of this fast. So I'm going to either use a script to copy paste it into the actual bank, right? And then, of course, when I'm replaying your credentials, I'm going to use a different IP, like a proxy, right? So then we'll pierce the proxy and find out the true IP as well. So that's, again, where we find success. The places where we've, I would say, it's there was a lot of hype in the earlier days that you can use behavior biometrics to do online authentication. But that, you know, I don't think has panned out yet. I don't think it's uh, behavior biometrics is ready for that. Right, like uh, we have built behavior biometrics models which can re-identify you based on how you type. But I would have had to see you at least three times before, and then for the fourth time onwards, based on how you type and how you hold your phone while typing, I can say with eighty-five-ish percent accuracy if it's you versus someone who picked up your phone and is typing. It'll never be ninety-nine point nine percent like Touch ID or Face ID. Yeah, yeah. So it's a fraud signal. It's not supposed to be an authentication signal. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. Um, well, maybe shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that we like to talk about is to kind of dig into, you know, we've talked about the product as it is today, the customers you can serve and kind of the strategies for targeting them. Now, as you think about call the next, you know, two, three, five years, whatever it might be, obviously you'd think about sort of the, some of the key risks or obstacles you run into, as well as the key opportunities. Like what are some of the tailwinds you think will be very powerful for your business? And so maybe starting first with some of these, these obstacles, right? When you think about over the next few years, what are some of the hurdles that you see as, you know, being very thoughtful of and needing to be caught, you know, watchful of as you, as you continue to build the business? And by hurdles here, you mean like just in general, the macro trends? 
Yeah, whether it's like things that execution on your side, right? Things you have to continue out to build that will be very difficult competing with for ML talent to be able to continue to advance the models you're using, you know, increase rates of fraud, those types of things that can kind of impact you. Yeah, so in any startup, I think the, the biggest risk is really execution risk and velocity of shipping is something we always monitor very, very carefully to plan against that. We are close to 100 people today, but since we were like, three people to until 100 people. We don't do two-week sprints. We do one-week sprints. My engineering team does not do monthly product demos. They do like every week to the entire company. Then my sales team and partnerships team, we have sync with them every week. Like, And speed is utmost importance because if you don't have speed, you know, slow, being slow will just kill you or another competitor will crush you. So every single day, me and my team, we actually have a SLA of one day. We respond to every customer for the email request within a day worth of SLA. So yeah, not concerned about execution risk. I think the only thing I think about mostly is how do we stay ahead of the curve when it comes to changes that are happening in the macro, right? Macro could be things like, you know, are more and more payments just going to move to faster payment methods, right? What does that world look like then, right? Like, does that world then have even more scams and fraud? And how can we continue to play a more, you know, increasingly meaningful role in that space, right? So those are the questions I think about, yeah. Yeah, totally. Is there anything in terms of, I guess there is, you guys have this interesting position where like a lot of people get very excited about the progress of fintech and, and like payments, digital payments more broadly and all these things, like those are positive things that people get excited about how they're evolving and getting better and improving. You guys kind of have an interesting seat where on the one hand, like I'm sure you're glad that payments are getting easier for you as a consumer user or whatever. But on the other hand, you're thinking every time we have like a new paradigm shift in in the way that payments are processed or whatever, that also opens up a whole new basket of threat vectors. And so you make an interesting point of like as the way that you know payments happen or whatever changes that could introduce new sort of fraud processes or whatever. Are there certain things happening in fintech that you look at and say, man, you can almost feel yourself getting ready to like jump in and pick up the pieces of as things are changing, we also need to be thoughtful of how the fraud may change there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we, we're doing that all the time. Our sales process is very consultative, right? In the sense that, you know, if you are talking to a product manager at a fintech or a large bank as they're launching a new product, they actually bring us in in a very consultative manner first, right? Oftentimes, you know, I personally would also, as well as my GTM team, we'd all immediately help them understand the gaps that they ha might have when it comes to the new fraud vectors they might introduce, right? And then we present a solution to them, right, as to how we can help them fix those gaps before they launch. Because the key thing in the world of fraud is that there's no sort of a red teaming exercise that happens, unlike security. Right. It's in the world of security, there's red team teaming exercises which identify gaps before go live. Fraud, like product managers who are building a financial product, if they don't think about fraud, pretty sure the first day that they get launched, they get their asses kicked. Right. And it's not just like a fintech which launches and fails at fraud. It happens with the largest of you know payment schemes as well. Like look at Zell, right? Do you think they predicted they would have this huge scam problem that is at their hands? Definitely not. And when, the more I think about it, the reason for this is that, number one, no one holistically thinks about fraud gaps before they launch, right? If they're thoughtful and they reach out to companies like us, we help them through it. And number two, the fundamental reason is that no one teaches you anti-fraud in schools, 
right? Yeah, totally. And that's a big gap that, you know, I'm very passionate about changing. Yeah, totally. It's super interesting also, just like there is, there's so many different elements of this, of like the behavioral process for individuals, as well as the kind of preparation for new products or new launches or whatever. And then the kind of, you know, day-to-day management of the overall fraud process. It's very multimodal. One thing that makes me think about as you is you think about the kind of opportunities that you have over the next few years, how would you think about, you know, if you could jump forward in time three years from now or whatever, and you kind of look at the Sardine platform and the offering that you have, is it is it largely exactly the same and it's kind of kept up with the latest fraud practices? Or is there something else where the platform becomes to be more expansive into different areas and categories? Or how do you think about that over the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we think that there's a very interesting trend that you know we we want to be a part of or in fact even define which is that whenever there is you know not just fraud but other risks as well right like of course compliance is one of them then you know like if you are thinking about managing you know your customers customers for example right that's something we are increasingly seeing right when we're talking to the largest payment processors or you know when we're talking to large b2b companies who are managing logins for their customers customers right so we are increasingly realizing that uh, the platform that we have built is scalable horizontally such that we can go after covering other use cases right like we can help you know these b2b companies prevent account takeovers for their customers customers we can go after payment. We can go after folks who are trying to build merchant acquiring in-house and help their compliance teams have visibility into, again, their customers' customers, right? And then likewise, you know, we today provide the, that type of visibility to sponsor banks who are managing multiple fintech programs in one dashboard. We haven't come up with a name for this yet. You know, internally, we just call it like a operating system, which manages all your programs in one place so that you don't have to Let's say you're a sponsor bank, you bank multiple fintechs. Today, if you wanted visibility into what your customers' customers are doing, you do a RFI, request for information. It goes over either secure email, if you're lucky, or most likely some non-secure email. So there's a lot of PII information floating around. Whereas with this, what we've built here as a grandparent, parent-child setup, you have full visibility into everything that the fintech is doing, right? Into what is the KYC policies, what are the case management queues look like, et cetera. So we want to take this concept from the sponsor bank OS to machine acquiring to you know just managing logins right and account takeovers. It was long long winded, but you know I hope that was clear. Yeah, it's super interesting. It also plays into this what I think is a really interesting trend where I feel like and maybe you could say that some of this is driven by the kind of macroeconomic correction and companies becoming more lean and focused and so like that. I think I think that's certainly part of it. But there's another part of it of people recognizing that you just can't be good at everything. Like it's very difficult to within your own company have core competencies across an entire stack of what you need. And what it sounds like you're describing even more so, I mean, certainly what Sardine does today achieves this, but what you're talking about in the long run, like that increasingly does this. You effectively say, hey, fraud is a very complex multimodal problem. And it's very rare that a company is going to build a sophisticated enough internal core competency. And so increasingly, it will make sense to completely outsource to some extent, right, that function to a company such as you, which I think is really interesting and kind of allows them to focus. My main question is like, when you have these companies who 
their whole business is built around a specific type of financial transaction. Right? You think about the exchanges, those types of trades are their bread and butter. It's everything they do. And so you think about if a core part of it is that understanding that user behavior and applying those models and things like that, do you see a world where those companies are able to completely say, hey, we want starting to manage this? Because it feels like that is a a category where maybe they can't have that as a core competency, but it's really hard to convince them that they shouldn't, like they shouldn't treat that as their core competency, that they should be good at, you know, building a product that people love to use and allow you guys to take over what you're good at. But how do you balance that with somebody that I'm sure thinks of themselves as very informed when it comes to user behavior? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a machine learning guy by training, right? And when I was building machine learning models for fighting fraud at my prior employers, right, I loved, I used to love data. But the mistake I saw some of the fraud companies make was that they were just hell-bent on selling me a fraud score, right? And, you know, I would be like, hey, I can actually now create a model and come up with a score quite easily, right? What I really need is data, right? We actually don't see us as a machine learning company. Like, if you want a machine learning model, you can go and, you know, spin up a machine learning service in, in Google Cloud, Azure, or Amazon very easily. We do machine learning, right? But we don't necessarily want to only offer you machine learned fraud score. So when we work with all these Fortune 500s and some of the largest B2B neobanks or the largest crypto exchanges, we actually offer them our raw signals, like all this advanced telemetry of how you type, swipe, scroll, your IP data, et cetera. We have become very good at gathering it in real time. And via our data pipeline, we pass it to them within hundreds of milliseconds. That is our core competency, right? So that we've never encountered that as a stumbling block in our sales process. Everyone loves data. And at the end of the day, we are a feature store, feature warehouse type company. I love that. I love that. So final question for you. We've talked a lot about how the world of fraud is always changing. And there's always this battle of people trying to come up with creative new ways to commit fraud and and scams and you guys trying to tackle it and, and take it head on. When you think about the next few years, what do you see as kind of the defining trend in in the anti-fraud world? And how are you guys positioning yourselves to take advantage of it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the biggest trend my prediction would be in the next five to 10 years, we'll start seeing increasingly that, you know, all the faster method schemes in every country, they start getting linked together, right? Uh, we already see that UPI integrates with Singapore's faster payment method. In future, we'll see all of them integrate with like faster payments in the UK, PIX in Brazil, you know, FedNow, RTPs, Zelle, et cetera, in the US. But then once that happens, right, and once you can actually use you know, faster payment rails to go from, you know, one country to the other to do cross-border remittance. Imagine the world of, you know, fraud and scams, right? It's just, it's going to be mind-boggling, right? So we increasingly are of the opinion, opinion that, you know, the, we need to have a system which, you know, slows down transactions just a tad bit such that you can do those checks in time because, an average consumer doesn't really care if, you know, you added like a five to six second or even like maybe just one or two seconds of, of, of a delay, right? But at that time, it's much better to slow down a transaction to go faster because you slow it down so that later you don't have all the repercussions of dealing with, you know, uh, refunding the victim of a scam, right? Yeah, makes a ton of sense. 
Well, Supes, thank you so much for joining me to walk through this. It's such an interesting seat that you guys have to kind of watch this whole category unfold. And best of luck keeping all of us from falling victim to this stuff. We really appreciate you doing the work. Absolutely. It was a pleasure speaking. Thanks for having me, Gal. Thanks for listening to Contrary Research Radio. If you want to hear or read more from us, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast player or visit us at research.contrary.com. Thank you.